Balpin, Tim Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. His weekly Monday appearance, except owing to a conflict in scheduling, has occurred on a Tuesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note. The Brain Trust, for the most recent iteration of the Arizona Diamondbacks, has consisted not only of Tony Lewis and Dave Stewart, but also Dejan Watson. Watson, however, is no longer a member of that triumvirate. Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic reported recently that the Diamondbacks will not exercise Watson's option for 2017. I asked Cameron what Watson's role might have been in constructing the roster that has led to a disappointing Diamondback season, and also to what degree Watson might be a scapegoat for that same disappointing season. Another club, of course, experiencing a disappointing season is the San Diego Padres, a season, in fact, that went from disappointing to illegal recently when allegations of medical record improprieties came to light and general manager A.J. Preller was assessed a 30-day suspension. It's not that surprising, however, according to Dave Cameron. Preller has basically taken any concept of benefit of the doubt, stomped on it, lit it on fire, and then shot it into the moon. Finally, a number of accomplished writers have used StatCast data to help identify the causes for the dramatic increase in home runs this season. What, I asked Cameron, what would we find, perhaps, if we were to apply that same sort of technology to, for example, the home run spike of the late 90s and early aughts? And for what other era might Cameron like to have this sort of data? Those brilliant questions and others like them in what follows, but what follows first, of course, is a sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek. SeatGeek.com, you are familiar if you've ever tried to buy tickets for concerts or sporting events. You are familiar with both the work and the hassle that attends that burdensome toil. Well, you might consider allowing SeatGeek to alleviate your considerable pain. SeatGeek is a service which pulls tickets available at all other sites into one central location, thus allowing the customer both to save time and also never miss a deal. What they do is they assess a grade based on value to every ticket, allowing customers to exploit inefficiencies in the ticket buying market. And perhaps even more notably, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price, quoting you the same figure from the beginning to the end of a transaction, unlike StubHub and all its fees and mysterious fees. For enduring this message, Fangraph's audio listeners are entitled to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. You download... The free SeatGeek app, you go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today for your nearest possible convenience. With which utterance we have reached the end of the sponsor's message and nearly the end of the introduction. What is it? It is FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does it feature? Managing Editor Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. How do we have that out of the way? Are you enjoying your new place? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, it's a nice house. I think the uh, – I'm still trying to figure out how to use a lot of the items in the home. So, mm-hmm. like – the, the seller didn't. Toilet. The, well, yeah. The seller didn't provide us like any documentation. So like, 
Um, we have a communal- so you have undocumented appliances. Well, we have like a communal mailbox, right? So we don't have a mailbox in our own yard. It's like a, one of those big like apartment type mailboxes where there's a whole bunch of different keys to get into your mailbox. Uh, he didn't tell us which one was ours, <laughs> so I didn't actually know how to check my mail for a couple of days. Oh, who to whom do you speak regarding that? I. I ended up calling the realtor of the seller, and she didn't know either. But she did know where to tell me which drawer she put the mail key in, which they didn't they didn't tell us ahead of time. So I finally found the mail key, and then just did process of elimination on like fifty mailboxes to find <laughs> to find my own. Is that the? I, I mean, do you feel like you employed the best method for getting to the bottom of this? I mean it. I I think the the best method would have been like the seller to leave a note, be like, "Hey, here's your mailbox key and the number." But uh, but I don't. He didn't do that. Yeah, it's an interesting point you're bringing up, and I think that applies more to real estate, which is, um, although real estate because it it tends to be such a large decision with so many variables, is um, there are questions just this phenomena of not even knowing which questions to ask to. Or you know, not being able to anticipate which questions to ask. You're right. Yeah. Um, you did not know. It reasons stands to reason you wouldn't necessarily know to ask where your mailbox was because um, certainly, uh, you know, for however many years you've lived in your current house, this has not been an issue. Right. All my other homes have had mailboxes of their own in the front yard without keys. Right. You just walk out to your front driveway and get the mail. So I didn't, I didn't realize this was going to be a thing I needed to know. This is not, it's not necessarily unintended consequences, is it? But it's, it's un, un, unaccounted for variables or something like this. Yeah. Something along those lines. Something along those lines. I don't know. I was trying to, uh, I had, uh, there was a glimmer of hope for me that I would be able to translate this concept uh, um, into a discussion regarding the pastime. And by the pastime, I mean baseball, which is frequently regarded or known as the pastime. Uh, but I think it's going to – I think it's going nowhere. That is how many of our conversations go. It's due. I, w- I would like to tell you – I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I consider these conversations a laboratory of sorts. Okay. Dave. A laboratory. How many where, laboratory explosions have you been involved in? Well, there, it, the, the experience, the experiments fail sometimes. In fact, frequently. Yeah. And sometimes we have a, uh, uh, what is it, Jonas Salk, Louis Pasteur. Yeah. <laughs> who, who, which one of them discovered penicillin? You say it. Uh, Jonas Salk. Jonas Salk. Yeah. What you did Louis Pasteur do? Pasteurization. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> in his last name. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So Jonas Salk, what, he accidentally discovered penicillin by leaving out uh, – by essentially by mistake. Right, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, we occasionally find things by mistake. But mostly when they're – when the experiments go poorly, it's just uh, – it's it's it goes badly for everyone. Yeah, I feel for the listeners of these last few podcasts. Let's uh, – let me ask you um, – uh, I don't know – I don't know if this is the same sort of fascination that, um, or – perverse pleasure that one derives from a car accident um seeing a car accident you know if you're on the highway but <clears throat> there is something fascinating about two organizations currently one of them is the diamondbacks and one of them is the padres and i will con- continue to ask you questions about them <laughs> for as long as they continue those clubs continue to make decisions 
from which we learn, I guess we, they're all cautionary tales, I suppose. But I want to ask you about the Diamondbacks first because I saw, well, just in the past couple of days here, they seem to have dismissed Dijon Watson. Sort of, yeah. So they, uh, they have, uh, options on the contracts for their main front office, uh, personnel, including Dave Stewart and Dijon Watson, who's assistant GM, uh, those options were supposed to be uh, picked up August 31st. That was kind of the deadline that had been negotiated in advance because the Diamondbacks believe that like the rule of law does not apply to them. They just decided not to do anything about that deadline. They were just like, nah, we we're going to wait till the end of the year, even though it was expressly stated in Watson's contract that his option had to be picked up by August 31st. So they just pushed that back. And then like, you know, middle of September, a couple of weeks later, he decided to kind of push the issue and say, like, hey, look, if you're not going to pick up my option uh, that you were supposed to do a couple weeks ago, or at least let me know what you were going to do a couple weeks ago, I would like to know it sooner than later so I can go get another job. And they said, okay, you're right. We're not going to pick up your option. So they let him go. Right. Okay. <clears throat> now, I guess it's uh, – for, for me, from where I stand, um, I I guess I'm always – I'm equally surprised by, by – um, the people who demonstrate competence and how competent people can be in some cases. Uh, for example, when someone comes over and uh, um, in, uh, they installed a, an exhaust pipe on my uh, dryer, right? Yeah. This to me is like a type of magic <laughs> because I don't possess this skill at all. And yet this gentleman who came over, it was no problem for him. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, and so in some ways I think the world is full of people who are surprisingly competent. <clears throat> but I guess that there are also like high profile cases of incompetence too, aren't there? And, or just, uh, or negligence, like uh, pretty amazing negligence. And I'm guessing, I guess, I guess my case is like, where on a scale of like zero to 10, 10 being, um, gross negligence slash, uh, <laughs> heroic incompetence. Like where, where, where does the Diamondbacks front office or at least its main players and Tony LaRusso and Dave Stewart, like where, and I guess their owner, their owner must be implicated in this somehow. Like where do they all stand? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you could probably lay a lot of blame, a lot of different places. So I think Ken Kendrick, who's the managing partner of the Diamondbacks, not necessarily the owner, but kind of the, the face of the ownership group. Um, he's what now been in charge of, four different regimes in like the last seven years or something. Like he has not yet shown that he can hire people who prove to do a good enough job to retain their position. Uh, so I think if you're constantly hiring and firing employees, you, you, that's an issue and you potentially, well, let, me, let me ask you to pause right there. And we're going to continue on the, <laughs> who gets the blame. Uh, you mentioned hiring and firing employees. There's typically a, a hierarchy to this, right? Usually it's, Usually the manager gets fired and a, and a GM gets a couple of managers, right? And then, and then a GM gets fired and I don't know who, I mean, you can, you can just cycle through GMs infinitely until whenever you want to stop. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the thing is there's no one really to fire the ownership group, right? So like the owners can do basically whatever they want. Um, and it doesn't mean they're going to win. I think what we saw, uh, it was it Donald Sterling who owned the Clippers for 20 or 30 years and basically just ran them as incompetently as you could run a sports franchise and just kept hiring and firing, uh, GMs and coaches and 
they just never won. And no one could get rid of Donald Sterling until he decided to sell the team. Um, so that's a little bit of what's going on in Arizona. It's like you, you have people at the top who seem to not be good at identifying what makes a quality baseball front office. And uh, the Diamondbacks, I think um, they seem to just believe uh, in personality. Uh, as, as an outsider, I'm say I don't work for the Diamondbacks. I haven't spent a lot of time in their organization. Um, but from an outsider's perspective, they seem to, to just value personality very highly. And so the people they hire are um, large, outgoing, boisterous human beings who are probably not qualified for their jobs. Right. And they don't seem to be nerds. Well, yeah, <laughs> they're not big nerd fans. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> They, right, but, I mean, they like people who have experience in the game, um, but not necessarily experience thinking about the game. Well, okay, so so one of the gaffes committed by this front office was the uh, concerned, I guess the it was it Yoan jo- Lopez? Is that yeah, how you say it? The Yoan Lopez signing, yeah. Right, and the Yoan Lopez signing was it was sort of uh, well, it was a problem, I guess, most immediately because. The the Diamondbacks ended up going over the international um, signing bonus, yeah, right. Which in, which not only forced them to pay a hundred percent tax on Lopez's contract, right, but then also uh, barred them from signing like more than X million dollars of players ever for the next two years. Yeah, they couldn't sign anyone for a bonus of more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which basically took them out of the running of top international prospects for a couple of years. In years in which they would have had. Uh, a chance to sign some of the very best international free agents. Right. Now, go, going back to the Watson situation, yeah. uh, now Watson, I, was he, uh, it seems though he was instrumental to some degree in, in acquiring both Lopez and Tomas, who, who they gave, what, six, six years, 65 million or something like that? Correct. He was in charge of uh, international uh, expenditures and uh, player development, and uh, those things haven't gone very well. But. Right, they have not gone very well. Obviously, the obviously the so the Tomas deal is a problem because um, Tomas is he's not particularly good. He, he well, I guess he's he's bad in sort of a strange way, right? Well, um, I mean, it's become so he's like basically the classic low low on base slugger with no defensive value. Like this kind of guy existed in baseball a lot ten years ago. Is guys who had terrible plate discipline and just swung for the fences all the time and, you know, hit like 270 with a 310 on base percentage, but hit 30 home runs. And so people thought they were good, um, but they were, you know, total defensive zeros and bad base runners. And like, you know, before kind of the intellectual revolution of baseball, there were a lot of these guys. Like Joe Carter had this, had this career essentially and he got like MVP votes and was like considered one of the best players of his time. And then like, over the last 10 years, baseball's just gotten rid of these guys. They're just, they're not valued very highly anymore. Mark Trumbo is kind of one of these players, and he was. Yeah, I was going to ask about Trumbo and where he fit on the spectrum. Right. So he's kind of like, you know, the, one of the guys left in baseball like this, obviously having a very good year, but over the offseason, as kind of like the archetypal high power, low on base slugger, he was traded for Steve Clevenger, a backup catcher, and in order to uh, make the deal fair, uh, the Mariners had to throw in a minor leaguer along with Mark Trumbo to get Steve Clevenger. That's how much the league valued Mark Trumbo, who's obviously had a very good year, and that deal's worked out well for the Orioles. But that kind of shows you, like, the market value of this kind of player. Um, the Diamondbacks uh, apparently continue to believe that Yasmani Tomas is good. 
uh, or at least worth playing, um, and and don't seem to understand that he's just a replacement level player. Right, uh, and then but but the pro the pro the bigger problem was with Lopez, right? Because it it revealed not merely, uh, I suppose. A correct evaluation of a player, but also like um, just a general misunderstanding of the rules governing uh, player player signings. Right. So this one's a little more speculative in that there's a lot of rumors in the game about this, but like obviously you can't get anyone on the record to confirm this. The Diamondbacks will never admit this, but the story within the game that is generally believed by people who work for other franchises is that the Diamondbacks did not understand the rules. Uh, so that when they signed Tomas, they did not know that within 30 days they had to send a check for $8 million to the commissioner's office. And when that happened, ownership freaked out and told them, okay, well, you now have to go find that money for us because we didn't know you were going to have to make us write an $8 million check next month. So then they traded Tuki Toussaint, who was the previous season's first-round pick, uh, in order, like basically in a salary dump, to shed Bronson Arroyo's money. They saved uh, – Basically, ten million dollars, and paid off the debt to ownership that they created by signing his money to or by signing Juan Lopez. So essentially, they signed Lopez, cost themselves two years of international free agent uh, flexibility, and had to remove Toussaint from the organization in order to uh, accommodate ownership's desire to not have to send an eight million dollar check to uh, the commissioner's office without it being offset. So they basically swapped Toussaint for Lopez plus a huge penalty, which was a terrible idea. And and now, does it seem as though Watson is a, a sort of victim of these decisions at this point? Um, so a victim is probably not the word I would use. I think if you're in in charge of that scenario, you're responsible for that scenario. Right. Um, so I think whether – Regardless of what the truth is, and, and again, like, this isn't something we can get anyone to confirm. This might not even be the truth. I'm sure if Deshaun Watson is listening to this podcast, he's probably cursing us and being like, that's not how that went down. Uh, he's welcome to correct us on the record if he would like to. Um, I would imagine that you, if, if that happens on your watch, that's, right. that's a cause for your dismissal. Can you explain the Peter principle to me? Uh, that's essentially where you, basically promote people uh, who are not qualified for the position uh, that they're getting promoted to simply because they've been around or because of uh, inertia. Right. Or, or, right. Or that you, you, you continue to promote them or like what they, they exhibit competence at certain levels and then they get promoted like up above one level where they actually were are capable of being competent. Right. Uh, do you do you feel like that's at play at all? Um. So that's hard to say. So like Watson actually had a pretty. Um, uh, he was well respected within the game, at least among people that I talked to before he went to work for Arizona. Mm-hmm. So he was with the Dodgers before then, um, and I think the his reputation was was fine. Like he, people thought he did a good job at LA. I don't. I don't think we should say like. Dejon Watson signed Juan Lopez and uh, Yasmani Tomas, so therefore he is incompetent and an example of the Peter Principle. We don't actually know how much say he had in those matters. Like it could have been that Dave Stewart and Tony LaRusso were like, "We're doing this," and he was like, "No, over my dead body." I mean, that seems unlikely, but we don't we don't actually know. Um, but it does seem like 
no one in the room was effective enough in preventing those disasters from happening. I want to be clear. I want to be clear. And and it's not just necessarily Watson here. It's also Stewart and LaRusso in whom I'm interested. And I think that my fascination with the case is not merely that they have – it's not merely that they've had trouble. Other people – people fail all the time. Certainly – um, my own life is a, uh, is a, is a, is an encyclopedia in failure. But I, I guess the fascinating thing is the, is the um, volume of hubris that is accompanying the failure, right? Is it, isn't it though, isn't it the sort of the, the confidence and the hubris that one exhibits when that is accompanied by failure? There is something spectacular about it. Right. So I think that's probably what has drawn the ire of, of kind of sabermetric leaning fans towards the Diamondbacks more than anything over the last couple of years is the Diamondbacks have essentially celebrated their ignorance, right? So like since LaRusso was hired and, and then he installed Dave Stewart as his general manager, despite the fact that Stewart had no real reason to be hired as a general manager and no actual experience that suggested he would be good at the job. Um, the two of them have made numerous kind of incendiary comments about how they understood baseball in a way that uh, people who kind of focus on the statistical side of the game do not, and they were going to prove us all wrong. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that they have presided over a dumpster fire of a season um, feels like a little bit of schadenfreude. Yeah, I guess it's true. Um, I don't know if schadenfreude is at play with regard to the A.J. Preller situation. Well, I I suppose that schadenfreude... For anyone who's ever been who's ever been uh, bested or deceived by a very by a very handsome and uh, well compensated person, okay, um, I, I've noticed that uh, there are a lot of stock images of AJ Peller that that uh, that uh, are attached to you know internet articles regarding him, and he's just a he's just a very handsome man, yeah, and uh, but apparently he um, part of what has allowed him to be, I guess, somewhat successful is, uh, I mean, part of it seems, it wouldn't be surprising, I guess, if it were, part of it were based on deception. Because, and you wrote about this at the end of the last week, you, your suggestion is that in the case of the Padres versus, or in the case, I guess, of the Boston Red Sox versus the Padres um, in, with the trade of Drew Pomeranz, in the case of the Marlins against the Padres with the trade of... I guess Colin Ray, among others, right? Yeah. Um, it seems as though the Padres have gotten off, and Preller him, him, himself has gotten off rather lightly. I mean, what, it's just a 30-day suspension, and that's it? Uh, well, so Preller, apparently it's an unpaid suspension. So he loses a month's worth of his paycheck. So that's, I'm sure, sad for him. And uh, Major League Baseball also fined the Padres an undisclosed amount of money. I've heard that it could be pretty large, like seven figures. Um, but also, you know, when we're talking about player valuations, um, like when, when, so when that trade went down, we estimated based on Anderson Espinosa's kind of prospect rankings and performance that he was worth somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to $40 million. That's kind of uh, what they got back in an asset. Uh, if you say, okay, they had to pay an extra million or two million or whatever it was, whatever the fine was, that's not going to change their calculation of whether to make the deal or not. So yeah, losing your GM for a month in a time when there's nothing for the GM to do and paying what is essentially a, a 
negligible monetary fine in terms of baseball dollars uh, does not harm the Padres in any real way. Right. And so here's the question. What, what sort of uh, – to what degree are other executives disincentivized from following a similar course of action at this point? Yeah, I, mean, because, I think that's probably uh, something that is a pro- problem here is like you're basically betting on um, ethics to uh, – like a lot of what happens in baseball requires people to be honest with each other, right? So especially when you're making trades uh, and people do ask all the time, like, why don't we see more prospect for prospect trades? Because there is – information dissymmetry and teams know their own prospects better than others. And especially if you think that like the guy you're dealing with might be less than forthright about the player you're getting. Uh, maybe you just would rather keep your own guy and go with the devil, you know, instead of the one you don't. So now, um, probably was certainly not the first guy in baseball to be dishonest. Uh, and, and I guess we, you know, he continues to assert his innocence in this and like claims it was a, um, uh, administrative error that they kept two sets of medical records. But I mean, like I talked <laughs> about this a little bit in the, in the, in the post, there's no realistic explanation for what they did. That isn't fraud, right? Like you, you don't create more paperwork for yourself and more accounting for yourself for no reason. And no other team in baseball, including the Rangers where AJ Preller works or other teams, uh, that work, all, work, all, you, work, you said, you know, work. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, all these other, you know, everyone on their coaching staff has worked for other organizations and knows how medical files are kept. Uh, and everyone else does it the same way, except for the Padres who set up their own system in like a manner that there's no reason for beyond, um, you know, to withhold information from the other teams. That's literally the only plausible explanation for what they were doing. Uh, so the fact that they're claiming this was like an accounting management error is ridiculous on its face, and I would have suspended him another 30 days for insulting the intelligence of the commissioner's office. But is it uh, – this is a case, right, and I think that this is um, not uncommon in uh, in politics, right, where there's always – there seems to always be a preference – to seem incompetent as opposed to evil. Yes. Right. Um, be, because if, if you're incompetent, for some reason, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't upset people the way that, that, uh, like active, I guess, active acts of deception do. Yeah. And I think the funny thing is like, um, if this was anyone else, you would be suspicious and you'd be like that. Like, say, Dave Dombrowski and the Red Sox were the ones who were doing this. We flip it. And, and Espinosa was the one who were, they admit withheld medical records. And so the Padres got like a, a prospect with a, you know, potentially bum arm or something. Uh, we'd be like, well, that's weird. But Dombrowski has 40 years in baseball and is like universally liked and everybody thinks really highly of him. Perhaps we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Like, there would at least be some thought that you could say, like, because of your vast experience in baseball and your reputation, we might consider that this legitimately was an error. Um, Prowler has basically taken any concept of benefit of the doubt, stomped on it, lit it on fire, and then shot it into the moon. I'm going to switch metaphorical gears, Cameron. Okay. And uh, ask you about the home run spike in baseball. Yeah, that's um, different. It is different. Um, um, but what uh, what got me thinking about it was how well um, how well certain writers. Certainly, I know Rob Arthur has done quite a bit of work um, 
to, in terms of sussing this out, as have other people. I, I'm omitting their names right now, but it, Brian, all, Brian Mills and Alan Nathan and Jeff Sullivan and Ben Lindbergh. All right, they're all beautiful people. That's not the point. Is this though? Is that's uh, what the what, because I think in particular, right? Of maybe pitch effects and in particular Statcast data. Mm-hmm. It's been um, th- those tools have aided those writers in being able to identify what the causes are and are not of the um, the increase in home runs this year. Right. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm curious from your perspective what what we might have learned um, about about the uh, the power that was exhibited what at the end of the 90s, mid to late 90s, and early aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, if if the if these sorts of tools had been at our disposal, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, but it's an interesting question, right? If we had Statcast data for like when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were on their epic home run chase, uh, what would we have learned? Um, it seems likely that we would have seen like I, I think McGuire was probably like the Giancarlo Stanton of his time, right? Like my recollection is he hit the ball harder and farther than everybody else, and so um, I I don't think that we would have been like, oh look at this, there's like a league wide spike in exit velocity, we would have been like, look at Mark McGuire as, like, the big outlier like Stanton is now. Um, but I th- we don't know, right? Like, the kind of the surge that happened in the late 90s wasn't just about McGuire and Sosa hitting 60 to 70 home runs a year. It was that everybody could then hit 20 or 30. You had Rich Aurelia going yard 40 times in a season or 35 or whatever it was. Like, guys who had never shown any power before, Brett Boone hit 40 homers in a season, like, Middle infielders and catchers and center fielders suddenly became big time sluggers. And, um, it seemed like there was basically like this huge spike forward for everybody, not just kind of the high end sluggers. And I think what's interesting about this current power surge is we don't have anybody hitting 60 or getting anywhere near 60. Uh, we might have someone get to 50 this year, but maybe not. I think what like Chris Davis or Mark Trumbo has 43. Uh, and Brian Dozier has 41 or something. So, like, but no one's getting anywhere near Roger Maris's record. But we do have like Freddie Galvis is hitting 20 this year. We do have like kind of this surge of like Daniel Murphy out of nowhere is hitting for power. So um, we have kind of the same thing where we have the low end guys hitting a lot more home runs. It feels like, but not as many of the high. End, like it doesn't feel like Giancarlo Stanton has gotten a 40 percent bump in his home run rate, but like all the middle infielders have. Is that because if you if you take the average Giancarlo Stanton fly ball and add, I, I don't know, the random figure, but add 10 feet to it? Right. It's just difference. a more impressive home run. Right. Whereas there's a, there's a certain population of, of hitter hitters for whom an, an, added, an additional 10 feet um, is, is, makes all the difference? Yes. Uh, what do you think we would learn – if we were to have this technology at any, I don't know, to what epoch or era in baseball would you like to apply StatCast now that you I mean, have the, it for like a, a year and a half or whatever? I think the dead ball era would be fun. I like find out why no one could hit the ball very well. And like, was it just the like selection of players that they just had guys who couldn't make strong contact and the philosophy of hitting was just basically incorrect? Or 
uh, was it like that the ball itself was completely deadened and just didn't go anywhere. And so they would hit it hard and then it would just go 20 feet and fall down. Like that would be fascinating to me. Also, so uh, in terms of the hitting, uh, like hitting mechanics being incorrect, there is a, a, a sort of a freelance hitting instructor named Bob Tewksbury. Is that right? Yeah, correct. He's a person. And he seems to have pretty strong opinions about hitting mechanics and how for many, even, very, even you know, major league hitters, uh, they're flawed. They're not, they're not entirely efficient. Correct. He is uh, outspoken in his beliefs. And, but it does seem as though uh, there is some credibility to his argument. Is that not right? Yeah, he's worked with some players who have, after working with him, gotten much better. Right, and it seems like one thing he works on, and, and and this is I've seen this uttered by players inside baseball too. I think that uh, August Fagerstrom recently wrote a piece about um, oh, it was August Fagerstrom, all right, and it was probably oh, it was Alex Bregman. I think Cleveland yeah. had a series with Houston, and Houston's hitting coach, whose name I'm sure I know, uh, but will not <laughs> reveal here for secret purposes of mystery. Um, <laughs> Uh, said that uh, you don't. We don't want to hit ground balls in the majors. Yeah, the ground balls are bad. And but that I I feel uh, at least if I look into my memory that that is not that that is not something that's been accepted wisdom for years and years. Uh, right. I mean, I think that there for a long time, it's a lot of players have been taught to swing down on the ball, and that was kind of like the standard way of trying to get guys to hit line drives is to teach them to swing down. Now we, I think we can generally tell, like, swinging down on the ball is bad. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right, but and that's not, that is not a historical trend. Uh, here's another question I have. If you had, do you think that, that, that any of those players who exhibited home run spikes during what is now known as the steroid era, uh, do you think that we would identify certain hitters who at the time, uh, who, their improvement seemed mysterious or perhaps uh, a, a product of um, unsavory means. Do you think that uh, for some of them, they were just they were they had just found sort of a mechanical sweet spot? Uh, but that's certainly possible. I think like we don't know cause and effect well enough to look at, uh, say, Josh Donaldson, right? Who's a, who's one of the guys who I think's worked with Bobby Tewksbury, and say, uh, you know, here is why. Josh Donaldson went from a fringy, lower-level prospect, uh, kind of looked at as a 4A guy, into the second or third best player in baseball as, in his late 20s. Like, why did that happen? We don't know, right? So, like, some people will jump to the conclusion, like, steroids, just because it's lazy and easy, and some people are lazy and easy. So other people will be like, oh, clearly it's because he changed his swing, and he worked with this Bobby Tewksbury, and so therefore uh, Bobby Tewksbury deserves all the credit in the world. Wait, we don't actually know that either. Uh, so the reality is like, we don't understand cause and effect well enough to say this did, this guy did this thing and therefore this is the result. What we know is there's like a lot of variables and we don't know how much each influenced, uh, um, the changes. And so like we could look at a guy like Daniel Murphy or Freddie Galvis or any number of kind of slap hitters who became power hitters and say, we noticed they're hitting the ball in the air more. They're pulling the ball in the air more. Uh, these changes are obviously um, the result of something, but is it a philosophical change, a swing change, an approach change, the change of strike zone, the change of their body type, the change of how they're being pitched? There's just too many variables to say 
X led to Y, therefore we have Z. We don't, we don't know. We have like all the letters of the alphabet and we need to weight them in some manner and we don't know what those weights are. I want to say one last thing to you before we, uh, before you're, uh, free of your obligation. Uh, I don't know if you recall, and it was, it was perhaps, it had its genesis in a conversation that I had with Eric Longenegger, but I discussed it with you. This idea that a certain number of that, – that essentially the runs that a pitcher allowed, it all came down to a certain number of pitches, which didn't – which A, didn't hit their target, and B, in not hitting their target, also were not so far away from the middle of the strike zone that a hitter couldn't get them. Like essentially mistake pitches that were still hittable. Right. Remember yeah, I think we we talked about like how many like Greg Maddox would throw in a game versus a normal pitcher. Right. I, yeah. I and I vaguely recall talking about this. Right? And um, you may not have noticed it, but in the uh, David Lorla published a piece today at the site, a conversation with Clay Buckholtz. And uh, so this comment is really serving as an update to a previous one. I'm interested in how you feel about it. He says uh, Clay Buckholtz told David Lorla, he said, "What I'm getting hit, it's command and location in the zone." If you get beat on 10 pitches in a game, I'd say eight of them are because you missed the exact location you wanted. Well, I think that's, uh, that seems to speak to the, to this idea that we were, uh, that we were discussing. Okay, so is your question that, like, Clay Buckholz has proven us right? No, but, uh, he said 10. I think, I don't know, I forget what number we had used at one point. I, it might have been even a higher number. I feel like. Yeah, I feel like we were like 30 or something. Yeah, for Maddox, it was, right, and we have to say, like, Maddox is probably the highest. Um, I forget what Longenhagen's assessment was, like a guy with 80 command or whatever, how many pitches yeah. he would miss. But you and I think you and Longenhagen approached, came to a, a similar number, and then it would also happen to be the same one that Maddox, or roughly the same one that Maddox had. Come up yeah, with. we all kind of guessed at the same number. Right. Probably Maddox, though, once again. More educated. More educated. And, and which is why I maybe I was surprised to see that Buckholz only said 10. Well, he said if you get beat on 10 pitches in a game. Right. Then that's the percentage. That's the nominator, right? Is that a thing? A nominator? Is it over yeah. a denominator? Uh, yeah, no, denominator is a thing. A nominator would be like someone who's like, I nominate you. <laughs> What's above the denominator? The numerator. The numerator. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess it is. All right. Yeah. I think that's it. I think that you yeah. fulfilled your obligation, unless you can think of anything. I mean, I can think of things, but not that I want to talk about on the podcast. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's be done then. Hey, Dave Cameron, thank you. Uh, this is your first this is the first episode you've recorded in, what, Bend, Oregon? This is the, the first podcast from Bend, Oregon. And actually, the, I would say the audio quality was pretty good. You seem to put yourself in a good room. Good. Yeah, I'm in a carpeted room, so I figured that might help a little bit. Yeah, it is. Yeah, very good. Very good. All right. That has been uh, Managing Editor Dave Cameron. Dave, thank you. You're welcome. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.